Welcome to the Bagwell Center podcast. This podcast features lectures and symposia hosted by the Bagwell Center for the Study of Markets and Economic Opportunity at Kennesaw State University. The Bagwell Center's mission is to provide a platform for an interdisciplinary study of the importance of markets and economic institutions in regard to resource allocation, entrepreneurial activity, economic prosperity, and improved human welfare. Through extracurricular outreach activities such as guest lectures, film screenings, workshops, fellowships, and reading groups, the Bagwell Center places an emphasis on educating students about the foundations of market institutions and examining the related impact of government policy in a mixed economy. For more information about the Bagwell Center and its programs, please visit coles.kennesaw.edu slash econop. Okay, good morning and welcome everybody. Uh, my name is Professor Matthews. I'm an economics professor here at Kennesaw State and director of Kennesaw State's Bagwell Center for the Study of Markets and Economic Opportunity, which is sponsoring today's event. Our guest speaker today is Dr. Jeremy Horpadal. Uh, Dr. Horpadal is an assistant professor of economics at the University of Central Arkansas and is an affiliated faculty with the Arkansas Center for Research and Economics. He has a PhD in economics from George Mason University. His areas of expertise are public choice, public finance, and economic history. Uh, Dr. Horpadal is published in numerous peer-reviewed academic journals, such as the Atlantic Economic Journal, the American Journal of Entrepreneurship, Defense and Peace Economics, and Public Choice. Today, he will be giving a presentation titled COVID-19 and Public Policy, Market Failures and Government Failures, uh, so, Jeremy, welcome virtually to Kennesaw State University's Bagwell Center. Thank you very much, Tim, and uh, thank you all for being here today. I'm glad to be joining you virtually as become, has become the norm for these kinds of talks uh, in the past year. Uh, and, and today I'm going to be actually talking to you about some ways we can use economics and the economics you might be learning in the class you're taking right now. To, to think about the pandemic and specifically to think about how public policy might address the pandemic uh, and to think about how economics can get us to, to realize the trade-offs involved. I think we'll, we'll talk about several different policies that have, have been used or could be used to try to address various aspects of the pandemic and related effects. Uh, but I think it's best to always think about these things as trade-offs, as creating uh, hopefully some benefits, but also we need to try to identify what the costs are and to think about those things. And I'm going to try to, in my, the short time we have together today, to, to talk to you about both ways in which uh, the market, or, or we might just say uh, social behavior that's kind of unrestricted, how that might create some problems, uh, but also how government stepping in uh, might create problems as well, or might delay other responses from the private sector. Um, so, I'll get started here in just a minute, but I want to thank you all for being here and, and listening today. Thank you for the invitation from Professor Matthews and the uh, the Bagwell Center, and also to all the other uh, Kennesaw State faculty who have have asked their classes to be here. Uh, hopefully, sometime in the future, we can we can meet meet in person. But uh, I do want to start out this uh, just looking at some of the some of the data. Uh, I know over the past year, some of it has have followed us. This data has been followed very closely by many of you probably about the deaths from the pandemic, um, probably so much that we're, we're getting sick of it. But I think that now we've had that we've had a full year of of the pandemic. It is useful to, to zoom out and just see what the effects have been. So um, I'm going to show you first. My slide will advance here. Um, 
looking at, I'll show you the first data for Georgia and then for all the United States. Uh, and then we'll get into the economics after looking at some of the health data here first. Uh, but this is just showing you a couple things here. Uh, first of all, I'm making a comparison between uh, different months, uh, uh, the same month in different years. So if you look at just these first two bars here where it says February, this is comparing the number of deaths in Georgia uh, in February of 2019 with February of 2020. So this is looking at all deaths. Uh, this is kind of independent uh, of whether the deaths are, are written or coded as being from COVID-19. Of course, we know that you know some of them will be, um, but I think there's been a lot of questions in the public about whether there actually are more deaths or are these just deaths that would have happened anyway and that are being recorded as COVID-19 deaths for various reasons. Uh, so as we kind of go throughout the year here, we can see that the the, the lighter colored bars here, this is the most recent data. This would be for the pandemic year. Notice they're always above the previous year. So this is always gonna be comparing 2019 to 2020. And at the end here, I've got January of 2020 compared to January of 2021, which is important to include that month as well. Uh, the red line is showing then the cumulative difference between these two bars, right? So it's taking the difference in the height here, then adding it to the difference here and so on to get a cumulative number of what we call excess deaths. So this is the number of additional deaths uh, that happened in Georgia uh, during the pandemic year, which I'm starting in February of 2020, compared to the previous 12 months. And here we can see that it's a very large difference. So in fact, in some months, uh, the difference is, is over 50% larger. So in Georgia, so far, January of 2021 has been the worst month for you guys. Uh, February data is not even complete yet. It takes a while to get good data uh, on, on death uh, to get accurate data. Uh, February might turn out to be just as bad as January, but in January of 2021 here, we can see there were over 4,000 excess deaths in Georgia, which represents a 53% uh, deviation from normal. So there's normally about 8,000 deaths in a January of a normal year, and there were uh, about 12,000 deaths in January of 2021. So certainly from this data in Georgia, we can see that there have been a lot more deaths uh, and these numbers end up being pretty close to uh, what are officially recorded as COVID deaths. Um, so don't wanna belabor this too much, but there, this definitely is not just a uh, artifact of deaths being recorded differently. Uh, if you look at the same data for the United States, we can see a very similar pattern uh, to Georgia here. Uh, for the entire U.S., uh, of all the deaths recorded so far, December of 2020 was the worst, uh, with it being 38% above normal. Uh, but both January uh, and last April had, you know, over 30% above normal for deaths. So in the U.S. so far, uh, you know, if you look at the official tally of deaths, it's a little under 550,000. If you look at excess deaths, deaths above what is a normal year, we've got almost 600,000. And so the numbers are a little bit different, but just all this tells us that this was a very unusual year for deaths and probably almost all that was related to the pandemic. But we can talk about maybe how some of the policy responses might have generated some additional deaths, but a lot of this is, is due to the virus itself and the health effects. So just one other way that we can see this is if we look at, this is for the United States, this is looking at how much deaths have deviated from normal. And normal for this, I'm using a five-year previous five-year average. Uh, there's lots of ways you could try to do this, uh, but here we can see 
one that jumps out here. I've got over 100 years worth of data. Uh, here we can see that the uh, 1918 pandemic had deaths. That's a flu pandemic had deaths 30 percent above normal, about 33 um, percent. We can see that there's no other year that really compares to that until we get to 2020. So here's 2020 where we see for the entire United States. Again, all the data is still being collected, but but the total amount of data looks like it was about 18 percent above normal uh, and the eight above normal, meaning above, say, the past five years. And so we can see this was definitely an unusual year for death, and it's not because the past few years were a little low. We can see the past few years have been a little bit above average as well. Uh, part of that's just due to the aging of the population, but we can see that in many cases, uh, or for all intents and purposes, uh, 2020 was the worst year for deaths if we compare it to previous years uh, in a century in the United States. So what's all causing this? How can we use economics to think about this? Uh, so for those of you that are in the contemporary economic issues course, I think right now you're just starting to talk about these concepts of market failure and then later government failure. For those of you maybe in a little more advanced economics class, you might have encountered these terms already, but let's just get a baseline of, of knowledge and terms here. Let's just define what we mean by these things, market failures and externalities. Uh, there are some cases in which government action can improve upon market outcomes. Now, a lot of what you learn in economics classes is how the market itself is is producing the good outcomes, right? It's getting us to uh, a a outcome where uh, we have the maximum possible benefit, uh, goods being sold, new innovation, uh, even self-regulation of the market. But there are some cases in which uh, market activity that's unregulated leads to what we call an inefficient outcome, that there is uh, a We'll look at the graphs here in just a moment, uh, but where we're not reaching that equilibrium and we're not having the total amount of welfare for society being maximized. And when that happens, there is at least a possibility for government action to improve on market outcomes. And so two that I'm going to talk about today, what we call market failures. One is what we call negative externalities. And that's where there are costs imposed on what we'll call bystanders, bystanders or what you might call innocent bystanders. Uh, this can be from market activities such as, you know, I purchase something, I purchase a gallon of gasoline, uh, I put it in my car, there are benefits for me, there are benefits for the uh, oil and gas companies that sold it to me, but there are then going to be costs imposed on everyone uh, in society as I drive around, burn that gasoline, as I emit pollution, and so that's going to be a cost that is imposed on bystanders, and here's where the kind of just market outcomes from people's ordinary behavior might lead to an inefficient outcome because for most market activity, uh, the producers are considering all the costs of their activity, and so they're choosing the right amount to produce, and consumers are considering all the benefits. That's the normal thing, such as when I go buy an ice cream cone, I consider all the benefits. Uh, there's no cost to anyone outside of me from my consuming of that ice cream cone, uh, so we don't have to worry about externalities for a lot of cases. But in the case of a negative externality, what it means is for something like gasoline, there might be too much being consumed. There might be too much consumption, or if we think about things even outside of market activity, just social behavior, there might be too much of that activity if there are negative externalities. So when we say too much, we mean too much from the perspective of economic efficiency. A very similar in some sense, but an opposite type of market failure is a positive externality. 
And this is when there are benefits for people uh, other than you from you taking some sort of activity. Uh, so for example, from you going to college, getting a college degree, uh, most of the benefit from that goes to you, but there are benefits to other people. There are benefits to society of having a more educated population, especially in democracy. Uh, having more educated individuals means we have better, hopefully better outcomes uh, from uh, the democratic system. Um, so there can be benefits from people's activity, which might mean that people are consuming too little of things where there is a positive externality. All right, so there's just kind of basic terminology we'll be using to talk about uh, the, the pandemic uh, as we go forward. Uh, so let's think about this concept of a negative externality in the context now of the spread of a virus. So let's think about uh, you going out to eat a meal at a restaurant. And let's think about going back to 2019 when there was no pandemic, we'd never heard of COVID-19 or the coronavirus. Um, and you were deciding whether you want to go and purchase a meal at a restaurant. What sorts of things were you considering? Well, you were considering what is the value to me of purchasing this meal at a restaurant? And that would then be represented by your demand curve here. Um, and then how many restaurants are there going to be and, and how large are they going to be and, and what types of food are they going to offer? Those are all the things that restaurants take into consideration with their supply curve. They take into account all the private costs of their uh, supplying the good. And so then we get an equilibrium where we get a maximization of consumer welfare. So you probably remember that if we were to shade all this in, right, we have benefits to consumers here, a triangle at the top. We have benefits to producers, that's their profit. And the key here is that in a normal market outcome, we're maximizing those benefits. We're maximizing the benefits to consumers and producers, or at least we're maximizing the sum total of those benefits. And there is no one else being hurt by you going to a restaurant and consuming a meal. But what happens when we get to 2020? What happens, how do we change this picture once we're trying to incorporate uh, the effects of the virus during a pandemic? in particular, a highly contagious virus. Well, we can show that by adding in some additional costs. So some additional costs from here, we'll, we'll, we'll show it as being related to the supply curve. Uh, we could think of it as being on the demand side too, but think about that there are costs of this activity of you going and eating a meal at a restaurant that are not considered by the restaurant, right? Because they are not costs that are borne by them. And they're not costs that are borne by you, the consumer of the meal. But what's happening is that by you and other people going out to restaurants, there's a lot more spreading of this virus around as compared to the alternative, either when there isn't a virus or if people simply were not going out to restaurants. You can think of this similarly to the pollution from your car, right? That there are not only effects on the people I directly drive by, they might get some smoke blown in their face, but there's an aggregate effect of all that pollution uh, that's gonna cause some general health effects as well as effects on the climate generally. We can think of the virus in, this, in a similar way that there are external costs that importantly here are not being considered by the restaurants when they're, when they're deciding whether to be open, how many tables to have, what safety precautions they're gonna be taking uh, they do not necessarily have a direct incentive to consider all of those costs. So what that means then for our, uh, we, are, we diagram our equilibrium here is that the optimum amount of 
restaurant meals consumed is going to be a lot less than in a the market when there is no virus, right? So what that means is that there is some what seems like benefits to consumers and producers, uh, but this is actually harm to society from the additional activity. And we might think we could perhaps say that maybe the, the optimal number of restaurant meals consumed when a virus is really spreading in a state or a city might be even closer to zero. But we can just think about that the, the amount of social activity, whatever kind we think about restaurant, eating at restaurants, going to schools, is gonna be less than in normal times. And therefore, we are not at the optimum amount of, of consumption. So we might want there to be less consumed. But the key here is no one has an individual incentive to change their behavior. The incentive is at the social level, uh, but just like I have very little incentive to stop driving my car in order to prevent global warming, because I know that my actions are not going to stop the global problem. The amount of uh, carbon dioxide in the atmosphere will be roughly the same whether I'm driving or not. It's similar with the spread of a virus, that the amount of spread of a virus in a community is going to be roughly the same whether I go to a restaurant or not. So we have the, the social incentives that are not aligned with the private incentives, which remember, if you go back to thinking when you first talked about supply and demand in your first economics course, uh, most of what we talked about is how the market is good at aligning social uh, incentives and the private incentives, that those are aligned in most market activity, but not so much when we have negative externalities. So what could be done then? What are some possible government policy solutions? Of course, there are almost an infinite number of solutions that we could consider, but I'm gonna talk about three here, or really just two. Uh, one is that government could order shutdowns of businesses. It could be specific types of businesses. It could be general shutdowns of businesses. So most states in the US in the spring ordered just general shutdowns of what they called non-essential businesses. Some states like where I am here in Arkansas, we had a limited shutdown of businesses. So uh, restaurants, hair salons, tattoo parlors. Uh, there's no general shutdown of businesses, uh, but this ended up being roughly the same in most states because you know, what were considered essential businesses were grocery stores, and that was what was open here in Arkansas too. So most states kind of tried this shutdown of businesses. This can have at least potentially very high cost to the economy, very high cost to workers, uh, but also potentially very large benefits. I'll talk in a few more slides about how we can try to measure what those costs and benefits are. In practice, it's very hard to precisely measure them, uh, but we can at least think compared to other sorts of interventions, this would be one of the most high cost ones we could think of. Uh, a second one that we could consider, a second public policy intervention, is to require uh, the, the use of face masks in public, including imposing fines on those who do not wear face masks. Uh, the costs of this, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to argue, are fairly low. Now, some might argue that they're larger than I think, but I, I will admit they are not zero. There's certainly a monetary cost to wearing and producing these face masks. There's an opportunity cost, term you've probably heard many times, uh, that if, if people in general public are wearing these, uh, that uh, healthcare workers cannot wear them because in the short run, the supply of them might be limited. Um, it's also just generally uncomfortable. It might reduce uh, some social activity. It's hard to socialize wearing a mask. So there are certainly costs to this, but I'm going to argue that they're pretty much pretty unequivocally lower costs than shutting down businesses generally, right? If you allow businesses to operate, 
but have people wear masks, this is going to be a lower cost intervention. And we could probably think of lots of other lower cost interventions, uh, such as, uh, you know, uh, governments making uh, testing for the virus very widespread and available and, and free. We'll talk about testing in a minute here as well. Um, but um, I'm also going to argue that th this is wearing a face mask and things like this uh, have a fairly low cost, but, but also potentially very large benefits. There actually are potentially large benefits from this. Um, and the, the third thing we can talk about uh, is the government doing nothing, which I think is something we should always consider. Uh, there are always some negative externalities from our behavior. I mean, there, there, there is no social situation in which there are no negative externalities. Uh, the key, though, we have to think about is, are the ex externalities large enough or are they uh, taking, are they manifesting themselves in a way that actually does alter people's behavior in an, in an important way so that people are behaving differently than they would with some sort of restriction? Um, so government should always consider doing nothing. This should, I think, always be the baseline to compare other policies. For example, considering shutting down businesses. Uh, we, we know that shutting down businesses will slow down the spread of a virus to some extent. Um, but how much does it slow it down? How does that relate to uh, how many fewer deaths and other health effects there will be? And how do we then compare that to the economic and social costs of shutting down businesses? Um, this is the comparison we should always try to make. It's hard to do even after the fact really well. It's really hard to do in real time which is what the, in the past year what we've been trying to do is to, to study public policy as it's been enacted. Um, and so I will admit there's a lot of uncertainty about what exactly works here. Um, but uh, I want to tell you a little more about, about what research has been done as this has been happening about the use of face masks. Before I do that, I want to show you though what we're trying to do. I'll go back to the graph we just looked at. What are we trying to do with requiring the use of face masks and imposing fines on those who don't? Or, or say imposing fines on businesses that don't enforce these rules, what we're trying to do to go back to this picture of the spread of the virus is we are trying to get, in this case, let's say businesses to take into account that social cost, which they are not taking into account in a, we might say a purely free market. In a purely free market, there are costs imposed on society from the actions of this business. We're trying to get them to take account of those actions. And the way we're going to do that is by requiring them to take some action and then by finding either individuals or businesses that do not follow that activity. So we're trying to, uh, with this public policy, do what usually happens in markets, which is to align private costs and benefits with social costs and benefits. Usually that happens in a market, you might say almost automatically. Uh, when there are significant negative externalities, it doesn't happen. So the public policy is trying to push us closer uh, to that alignment of social and private costs and benefits. Uh, whether it does it in practice is a really good question. Uh, here's what economists have tried to do to look at whether face masks work. So I've got a lot of words here up in the slides, so let me just kind of break it down for you. First of all, as I said, this is a hard question to answer. Lots of variables are changing at the same time. People are reacting to things in the news. Governments are requiring things at the same time that people are reacting. It's sometimes very hard to separate these two things. Uh, and economists, I should say, don't use, don't always like government mandates to do things. There are often a lot of unintended consequences. Hopefully a concept you've talked about in your other economics classes before as well, that this can have unintended consequences mandating masks 
for example, I think one thing we've seen is that a lot of people uh, in our society have been opposed to the wearing of face masks simply because governments have mandated it. They have, they have now seen this as something which is, um, uh, you know, uh, an infringement on their liberty and they're going to now stick it to the man and not do it. Uh, this could lead to fewer people wearing masks than if you didn't have the mandate. Again, we don't exactly know uh, how much this effect is. Uh, generally across U.S. states, uh, about 85 to 95 percent of people are usually wearing masks in public, and that's kind of independent about again, of whether there's any mask mandates. Now, we shouldn't take that to mean there is no effect of these mandates. Uh, in fact, there may have been a lot fewer people wearing these, say, last spring when it was a fairly new thing to do. So economists tend to be skeptical of these mandates, but we also like them because it's a really nice thing to study these. If a government at one point in time imposes a mask mandate, and that's the only thing they change, say, that week, uh, that can tell us, you know, does this, first of all, increase the proportion in which people wear masks? And then does that have an effect on the number of cases that are transmitted? And because most countries in the spring of last year at some point implemented a mask mandate, and very nicely in many countries, this was done kind of regionally or in different districts of different uh, states or regions of countries. Uh, there were a number of, I think, really well done studies which tried to look at this last spring when a lot of places went from basically no one wearing masks in public to a very high level of compliance. It was almost certainly due to these mandates that were put in place and you find pretty large effects. So in Germany, again, this is from last spring, uh, there were masks put in, mandates put in at different regions at different times. Uh, and this study found that face masks reduced the number of new infections by around 45%. That's a huge reduction in the number of cases. Now we might wonder, you know, that, you know, pol this policy is being implemented at the time when, you know, other things are going on, you know, so could it be that they just implement these mandates when cases are really high? And yes, it could be, but that I think makes this data even stronger. I think it makes it even stronger because uh, we might have expected that the cases would have been even higher without the mask mandate. So this might even understate how well these work. Uh, what we see in uh, Ontario, Canada, the, the largest province of Canada, I believe about 40% of Canada's population lives in here. They've got uh, about three di dozen different what they call health districts within Ontario. And they rolled out, not all at one time, here's the key, not all at one time, they rolled out mandates in different of these uh, regions at different times, and they found about a 25% reduction and the number of weekly new cases. There's some evidence from the United States as well. Uh, this is from many states mandated the wearing of masks by businesses and or by employees in public facing businesses. So for example, employees in restaurants. And there was also uh, found to be uh, a pretty significant reduction that could have led to you know, somewhere between 20 and 50% fewer deaths nationally if these uh, mask mandates hadn't been imposed earlier. Now I will say, that you know, we should always be skeptical of these kind of results as they're being done in real time. But I think a lot of the good evidence suggests that face masks and face mask wearing and face mask mandates possibly do significantly reduce the transmission of a virus such as our current pandemic virus. And since they are such a low cost, we should be willing to bet on that evidence that's, that it is a good thing to do. What about for lockdowns? What about for business shutdowns? What is the evidence here? Here it's even much harder to study because I think governments really were implementing these at the same time people were changing their behavior. People 
people and governments are essentially reacting to the same data that's coming out, the data we looked at in the first slide, but you know, coming out daily, they're reacting to this at the same time. It's, it's really difficult to find these uh, differences, but one place you can look is say at, there are many cities or metropolitan areas in the US that kind of sit on the state borders and might sit even in three or four states uh, that the metropolitan area might spill over. And different sides of the border might have different policies. So if the policy is changing on one side of the border, but not on the other side, but everyone's kind of reacting to the same uh, general news, uh, then maybe we can say something about that. So here's, I think, one good study. Again, this was done, uh, and this is already published in the Journal of Public Economics, uh, that looked at uh, overall consumer traffic, that is, you know, consumer movement fell by 60 percentage points at the time that all these things were happening. So this is last spring. Uh, but the legal restrictions explain only seven percentage points of this, so about 10% of it. So about 90% of the of the drop in you know people's movement about their communities happened even without the restrictions that were put in place. So we might say that at the margin, the restrictions do reduce movement, and maybe that reduction, maybe that last margin, maybe that's really important. Uh, but most of this is due to people's behavior changing. Uh, so you know this we could say this kind of cuts both ways um, that the restrictions probably don't do that much to reduce the transmission of the virus they also probably don't have you know as big a cost as we might think most of the costs from increasing unemployment rates say are just from people deciding not to go out to eat um, but we can see that there might be some additional costs to businesses that say wouldn't have shut down without these restrictions and that their employees might be specifically unemployed because of the restrictions. Uh, so uh, the cost of this can still be very high, even though I'm, I'm telling you now that uh, most of the changes were due to people's behavior changing. Um, and and the, these authors redid this study both when restrictions were taken off in the summer and then when they were reimposed in last fall, and they found generally the same thing. About seven percentage points of the change can be seven or eight percent they found in later periods can be explained by the change in legal restrictions, but most of it's just people changing their behavior on their own. <clears throat> so what can we learn from all this? I think the, the biggest thing that I would I would suggest that we can learn for, because we want to know, you know what are lessons for public policy in the future based on what happened in the past, is I think we should look for always, if we have a kind of suite of, here's all the ways government could intervene, if we're uncertain about what the effects are, that shouldn't necessarily mean we do nothing, but we should look for government policy interventions that have low cost to society, but potential high benefits, as opposed to ones that have very high costs, uh, even if the benefits could be large too, that those should only be taken uh, with a, a, we might want a higher degree of, of evidence, a, a higher burden to proving that before taking those more restrictive measures. So let's shift now and talk about uh, the kind of opposite type of market failure, but I think which applies here very closely as well, and that is where there are benefits to people uh, other than those, say, consuming a particular good. And I'm going to talk about a very specific good, which is a kind of all over the news and is almost as much dominated the news as much as the virus itself did uh, several months ago, and that is the vaccines that are being rolled out. And I'm going to argue here, and you know, we can't know this for sure until everyone, everyone who's had the opportunity to be vaccinated has been vaccinated. I was lucky enough to already be vaccinated. Here is my card showing that I have been vaccinated already, and I can uh, possibly, you know, uh, get into. I can get my free 
you know, things that businesses are now offering that we'll talk about with this with this card. Uh, but surveys suggest that perhaps two thirds of Americans, uh, adult Americans, will voluntarily get the COVID-19 vaccine. This survey is a little bit old, but you know, this is kind of this is from Gallup, which is a very you know highly credible survey organization. Let's not say it's exactly pre precise that it's exactly 65% now that say they will take the vaccine, but let's say it's about two thirds. Uh, is that enough to stop the spread of the virus? And Jeremy, just to clarify, those uh, lines are not crossing each other. The yes is always above the no, correct? They just happen to meet at 50% yes. at some point and then. Yes, thank you. Thank you, Tim. Yes, so okay. uh, this is showing over time uh, right. surveys. Uh, there was a kind of dip here in the uh, middle of, of last fall where only about 50% of Americans said they would take it. Uh, but there's always been more people saying yes. Yeah, the, the lighter colored line is the yes. That's always above the no. So we've pretty consistently had about two thirds of Americans saying they will take the vaccine. Did dip a little bit, but but always out. You had about 50-50 about here in September, October. Um, but uh, let's say there's about two thirds. That might not be enough to get to this concept that epidemiologists call herd immunity where there's so many people that have the vaccine or have immunity that it stops spreading. It might be, but it might not be. So there might be too little consumption of vaccines. So we can think about this in terms of our good old supply and demand as well. Of we think about the price of a vaccine and all the you know monetary and other costs. Now for most people, there's there actually is no monetary cost that government that the government has actually paid for this. Um, but there are there are perhaps personal costs to getting it, just the time for you to go out and take time out of your day. There's there's some, uh, I will tell you, there is some personal inconvenience to getting it, some minor side effects that you may experience. So there are some, uh, there is some price to doing this. Uh, but let's say that the number of people that would need to get vaccinated to get to our concept of herd immunity, let's say that we're gonna need more than that two thirds. Let's say this Q market here, this is two thirds of people getting vaccinated. Let's say we need more like 80% getting vaccinated to get to herd immunity. How do we convince those other people to do it? How do we get them to consider the benefit that they are conveying on society by getting vaccinated? Of course, there is a benefit to you, but for most of us, if we're young and healthy, the main benefit we confer is to society, right? The benefit is not to us, it's an external benefit. It is a positive externality. So how do we convince those people to get vaccinated? Economists have a neat trick for this, and it's kind of the opposite of fining people for not wearing masks. This is that you could just pay people to get vaccinated. So economists have been talking about this, um, uh, including uh, Greg Mankiw. Uh, I know you guys use a, a, a textbook that's specific to Kennesaw, uh, but I, I often use Greg Mankiw's textbook in a class that I teach similar to this. He had an Actually, anybody that takes our standard principles of micro course, the Econ 2106 uses the Man Q book. Okay, great. Yeah, it's it's I believe still the most widely used book. And uh, it last I think December, Greg Man Q often writes in the New York Times, one of the largest papers in the in the in the country, and he said, let's pay people, let's pay people a thousand dollars to get vaccinated, right? Maybe that's the external benefit from you getting vaccinated. Uh, we're sending people out $1,000 checks kind of randomly anyway. Why not pay people to get vaccinated? Doesn't involve forcing anyone, right? We want to maybe stop short of forcing people, but let's pay people to get vaccinated. Uh, this is an idea that a number of economists have, have suggested. As far as I know, no governments have done this yet, but it's at least the way we might think about how we might give people an incentive to do this 
But just yesterday, I saw an excellent new incentive. Some of you may have heard this as well, is that Krispy Kreme is now offering you free donuts, not just once, but if you bring in your vaccination card, that Krispy Kreme will give you a free donut every day for the rest of the year. Uh, to some Americans, maybe this is worth more than the $1,000 check, uh, depending on how much they like donuts. Uh, but this is a kind of, you know, we might say a little bit silly kind of possible private solution to this, but this is another incentive. And so we can think of just generally economics can tell us what sorts of incentives could we give people to get vaccinated. Again, most people, two thirds of Americans will just do this on their own, right? They'll do it because either they want to be protected or because they have others they want to protect in their family. Uh, my parents, I have not seen them since last spring. They're actually coming today to visit me in Arkansas. Uh, so we're very excited about that. They're now vaccinated. And the first thing they want to do is come see their grandkids, right? So, uh, and we've gotten vaccinated here to make sure that, well, not my kids, obviously, but we've gotten vaccinated here to make sure that they will be safe when they come because my parents are elderly. So this is a potential solution that economists would say, pay them. And again, if we think about our picture here, what we're trying to do is get people to take into account the benefits that they are giving to society um, by them getting the vaccine. So we can get to, in this case, our optimum number of people getting vaccinated to get to our herd immunity. All right, so uh, there's a one possible last resort here. If that doesn't get us to uh, the, the number of people for herd immunity, should we mandate people getting vaccinated? Of course, this involves a much more significant infringement of people's liberty. So economists would say this should be a last resort, but economists have been asked about this even before the current pandemic. So here's a survey of economists about whether uh, uh, there's a, a social benefit from mandating, mandating vaccines for measles uh, that would exceed the social costs, right? So of course there are benefits, there are social costs. Uh, almost all economists that in, in this survey uh, this is from the, the IGM forum, if you're interested in looking up at the University of Chicago. Almost all economists say that mandatory uh, vaccines for measles for children uh, have social benefits which exceed the social costs. I imagine if economists were asked the same thing about COVID-19, they would say yes. But still, I think economists much more would rather use the incentives to try to get people to do this rather than the mandate. Um, so for my last few minutes here, um, I'm, another way we can use positive externalities is to think about how to get the production of vaccines up. Um, I won't spend a whole lot of time talking about this, but uh, our government has done this a lot also, right? It's one thing to get people to try to consume the vaccine. It's another to get the vaccine produced in the first place, and firms may not have the incentive to produce them. So governments always have in place a system of patents and copyrights and intellectual property to try to encourage innovation, but maybe in a pandemic, we need to maybe do a little bit more than this. And our government has through Operation Warp Speed provided both funding to pharmaceutical companies uh, and most of them other than Pfizer did take this as well as uh, the government essentially doing, you know, guaranteed purchases of the vaccines. So this is another way in which governments can intervene in the markets, but here then to encourage the production of a good rather than the consumption of it. So when there's a positive externality, you may want to do one or the other. In some cases, you may want to do both if there's a, a positive externality, both from the production of it, because once one firm has produced it, other firms can then use that information to produce similar vaccines of the mRNA variety, which is a new type of vaccine. And so there's some positive spillover from, from that. So here we had Operation Warp Speed, which the Trump administration spearheaded and, and 
We can never know, did it really get us vaccines faster? Uh, but it seems like with all the money government has been spending over the past year, right, $6 trillion, spending a few billion dollars on vaccine research was probably uh, one of the best investments they made. So for the last bit here, though, I want to talk about government failure. So I've been talking a lot about market failure. So for my last nine or 10 minutes here, I want to talk about government failure also in the context of these vaccines. So I want to talk about government failure and I want to use the idea that we've used throughout an economics class, the idea of incentives to talk about private behavior. Let's apply that same concept of incentives to behavior of public officials to, to look at ways they might behave well and ways they might not behave well. So if we think about the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, which approves vaccines and other drugs and medical devices in the United States, uh, there are two types of errors that they could make. Now, if a drug is beneficial and the FDA allows it, that's the right decision. Now, what exactly beneficial means, uh, we can have lots of debates about that, but we can agree that lots of drugs have very high benefits and low costs, and that'd be a correct decision. If a drug is harmful, the FDA should not allow it. Uh, but what if there is a drug that is harmful that the FDA, oops, accidentally allows on the market? They didn't test enough. That's one type of error. Uh, this error is bad. It could result in additional deaths. This error, though, is largely self-correcting because it will become evident to the public. People will see the deaths happening from this, and that drug can be then pulled off the market. The other type of error, though, which we sometimes call a type 2 error, is a hidden error. This is where the FDA does not allow a drug, or in this case, a vaccine, onto the market because they are worried. They are worried it will end up being in this category, but they will then maybe keep it off the market too long. And economists have studied this types of behavior by the FDA for years, even before the current pandemic, and have looked at, say, vac uh, uh, drugs that were approved in other countries before the U.S. approved them, and have estimated this costs tens of thousands of deaths every single year from the FDA moving much more slowly than other regulators in other countries, trying to not have this type of error, because if you are the head of the FDA and you have a, a drug come out that ends up being not very effective, and also not very safe, you're gonna lose your job. Uh, FDA directors usually don't lose their jobs over type two errors, over keeping things off the market because a better safe than sorry seems to be something that uh, the, the political system seems to like and the public doesn't really see those deaths. The really interesting thing about what's happened in the past year is we have seen those deaths, right? We watch that death counter go up every day. It's on CNN every day, right? Uh, th those deaths are going up. So we're actually seeing all the type two errors in real time, which hopefully has increased the incentive for the FDA to get these vaccines through very quickly. But one thing I think is really interesting is that the FDA also improves drug tests. So I'm gonna come back to vaccines on the next slide, but uh, drug tests, this news just came out uh, as of uh, now eight days ago. You can now on Amazon buy a prescription free in-home COVID-19 test that you can take at home so you can know if you are infected. Uh, but this is not a typo. This should have been, I would argue, this something like this should have been approved on March 15th, 2020, that you could, when we were just starting this pandemic, that you could have cheaply on Amazon had delivered to your home a testing kit and to know if you're infected. Everyone wanted to know this, but this was not approved. None of these tests were approved. The FDA didn't even approve a home test until November and that one still required a prescription, a prescription free home test available on Amazon. It's now available. The pandemic's almost over now. 
why did we not have this 12 months ago? Well, the FDA is very cautious about letting out what they might see as a bad test. And a bad test in this case would mean, well, it's going to tell you that you are uh, you know, not positive. It's, it's going to give you a, a, a false negative, And you might go out and infect people and you might get sick. Uh, that's a worry. But as we saw over the past year, there was a much bigger worry of all this uncertainty about who's infected, who's not. A lot of people just wanted to know. And it was very hard to get a test in the early days. In fact, for almost the first six months of the pandemic, very hard to get a test unless you had a really good reason, you had really clear symptoms, you'd say been to China you'd, you'd, in the early days. Uh, companies were trying to develop these tests right away. Uh, hospitals were trying to develop their own tests. The FDA in general was not allowing these sorts of home tests, uh, which meant that you had to go through the normal medical system to get it. They're now available and that's great, but why did it take 12 months? Think about the incentives that regulators face. And then finally, here's the last thing I'll talk about here, I think I have about four minutes or so, is something which is also in the news right now, which is that in the United States, well, we have lots of great vaccines like the Pfizer vaccine that I've got and the Moderna vaccine and the Johnson & Johnson. We cannot get the AstraZeneca vaccine in the United States. We cannot get it. It's not approved for the use in the United States yet. Maybe we're getting close. It was approved for use in the United Kingdom over three months ago, or exactly three months ago. A month later, it was approved in the European Union as well as Canada, Australia, Mexico, Taiwan, India, 70 countries or so have approved this. Now, several European countries, uh, even though it's still approved in the EU, have sus temporarily suspended the use of this. Again, they think this is that, that type one error I talked about. There's a few people that got blood clots and died from this. And now they think, wow, we don't wanna be responsible for these deaths from this vaccine. Uh, it very quickly became clear that the, the percent of people getting these blood clots is the same as the general population in a normal year. Um, so it apparently has nothing to do with the vaccine. So hopefully Europe will get these back out again. But the United States has still not approved this. Uh, this week, it was reported that clinical trials specific to the United States, because the FDA requires you to do tests in the United States on Americans, as if Americans have different immune systems from people in England or people in Germany or people in Canada or people in Australia. The FDA, no, they require tests done in the United States, large scale uh, randomized tests, which is good to do these tests, but in the middle of a pandemic, how many tests do we need? Especially that given that sitting in a warehouse in Ohio are 30 million doses of this ready to go. A warehouse in Baltimore has it already produced as well and could be have tens of millions of more doses put in vials if it was approved. Uh, we're not using these, right? Uh, and most states are doing a pretty good job, I would say, rolling out vaccines, but most states are constrained by the supply of vaccines that are available to them, right? Most states are rolling this out as quickly as possible. And some states you might see have only administered, say, 60 to 70% of their doses. Uh, that's because they're, they're putting doses away for people's second dose which maybe we shouldn't do that either. That's a good question. Shouldn't we give people their first doses first as the United Kingdom has done and now has 40% of their population vaccinated? But there's a huge supply constraint here and the FDA is still the roadblock. So the FDA was the roadblock for tests a year ago. The FDA is a roadblock for this vaccine, which has already been shown to be effective in many countries, but because of the, they don't wanna be the ones that let out a, a vaccine that turns out to have bad side effects, which sometimes vaccines do, but it's those incentives that are uh, causing them to do this. So one thing we might think, why are the incentives different in the United Kingdom? Why are they different in the European Union? These are all really great questions which economists try to think about all the time. But at base, we're trying to think about what are the incentives that political actors face? 
So I'll close here by saying that, you know, uh, contagious disease pandemics, I think represent the strongest case for government intervention in markets and society. They have large numbers of what we call both negative and positive externalities, and just generally what we call collective action problems, that there, there's no individual incentive for you to do a lot of these things, to wear a mask, to get vaccinated, to stay home. Your individual incentive, unless you are a person who's susceptible to die from the virus, are very low. It's a collective action problem. We can't behave individually in a way the collective would like. Um, so this presents, I think, the strongest theoretical case for government intervention, but we have to also look at how governments I, operate in the real world and to think about how we can reconcile these two facts. And, and uh, I think there's sometimes in the public discussion of this, uh, either too much of a focus on market failure or from the other side, a lot of my friends, I would say, too much of a focus on government failure. Uh, I think we need to look at what are the what are the the different magnitudes of each of these to try to get some uh, coherent, you know, thinking about what would be good government interventions to address clear market failures, but to not have the bad government interventions, which might actually make things worse. Uh, so thank you all for your time. I, I really look forward to the questions. I know that in this format, it's a little weird. You know, you see me, but I don't see you right now. Uh, but but uh, I'm glad we can do this. And I, I look forward to to answering all, all the great questions I know you've been coming up with. So thank you for your time. And 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 thanks again, Tim, for the, for the invitation. Great, thank you very much. A very informative presentation. Uh, just a reminder to the attendees, if you have a question for the speaker, please put it in the live event Q&A and I'm monitoring that and then we'll ask on your behalf. Um, I used to start things off, two questions about the AstraZeneca um, vaccine. I guess one kind of broad and then one more specific. First, the broad question. I know that a lot of states in the US, or at least some states have, uh, and I forget the exact term, but like right to try laws that allow people to, you know, try a medical treatment before it's been fully vetted and approved. Um, are the states in the US that have those laws allowing people to get the AstraZeneca uh, vaccination if they choose, or is it not even able to get in those states, or don't you know? <laughs> <laughs> That's a really good question. I'll, let me just ask you, for, should I stop sharing my screen? Will that make it kind of better? Yeah, because so that would maybe make more sense at this point. Okay, if you yeah, wanna let me stop sharing it. So have your video on there. My, instead, my so face in, in the big screen. <laughs> Great, we can see okay. now. <laughs> okay, great. Um, I think I, I always try to not answer questions I don't know the exact answer to. Um, I, I have not heard of any examples of states allowing people to try vaccines that have not been approved. Um, I think that that I think that that's a great idea of something that could be tried. Uh, people have also talked about another thing called challenge trials, where you actually let people get infected with the virus and then and then and then take a vaccine and then and then actually try to get infected. Uh, we haven't done those in the U.S. So I think there's a lot of creative things we could do, like letting people try vaccines, even if they haven't been fully approved. Um, on the testing as well, um, the, the, the FDA has allowed some universities to develop their own testing protocols, especially if they have medical schools, and they actually allowed them to do a lot better testing as well. So University of Illinois, uh, which has over 50,000 students, was testing like all of them twice a week, and they were able to stay open in person by you know the FDA allowing some freedom there. So I think, I don't know on this specific question, it's a good one, but I think allowing more freedom where people are, because people are always, I think, the best in most cases at considering the costs and benefits themselves. And I think it's a good idea, but I, I, I have not heard of it, but if someone has seen it, I'd be interested to know. Great, okay, another question related to the AstraZeneca, and I don't know the specifics of this, so I'll just kind of read it as it was asked. <laughs> okay. uh, what's your take on AstraZeneca's bad job of sharing its trial results? 
Just today, there were reports that they shared interim data with the FDA, resulting in more hesitation on the part of the agency. Do you know anything about yeah, this Yeah, I did see that, yeah. And even back in, in December, you know, they were, uh, I mean, for some reason, AstraZeneca has not been uh, communicating as effectively with the FDA as, as other drug makers have. Um, to me, that doesn't make me any more skeptical of, of the trials. To me, that suggests that because AstraZeneca is not a U.S. company, uh, they're, they're a Swedish-British company, and it's in cooperation with Oxford University. They just don't know how to, to I think, navigate the, the regulatory atmosphere in the U.S. probably as well as uh, U.S. manufacturers like Pfizer do. Um, so, uh, you know, I think I think we should always, you know, take have concerns about things like this that there could be side effects. Um, and I am I am not a medical expert, but you know, to me, the fact that many countries and not just you know North Korea or something or Cuba, but like you know most developed countries have already approved this. To me, that suggests that the FDA is probably being too cautious here, and uh, I think AstraZeneca could be doing a better job of, of, of navigating that regu regulatory atmosphere. But I think that that does show that this kind of overcautiousness, the, the type two errors that I mentioned as, as showing up here. But it's a good question. OK, great. Um, so it's a shifting focus a little bit and touching on the you know, examples of you know, Krispy Kreme offering you know, free donuts <laughs> to people that are vaccinated or someone put in our, uh, pointed out in our Q&A um, actually, Professor Bradbury, who I'm sure you know, uh, noted that you know, Publix, a grocery store chain in this area, and I think in Arkansas as well, will give you a $10 gift card if you get your flu shot. Um, I have some thoughts on the answer to my question, but I want to get your insights. What are the incentives for these private entities to provide these perks to people? Yeah, I think I think those things are good. I will say, interesting regulatory fact. Arkansas is one of three states where it's illegal to give people incentives for the flu shots. <laughs> I went to Target last year and I said, hey, I got this national advertisement and I get a $10 gift card. And they said, oh, not in Arkansas. I think Arkansas, New York, New Jersey don't even allow you to get incentives for the flu shot, which I think is kind of crazy. So that's, I think that's a good example from Professor Bradbury. And I should say, if you want to follow the, the ongoing COVID data for Georgia, Professor Bradbury is the best source on that. So I, I, uh, I just dumped in a little bit of my data at the beginning, but he's got good daily updates on, on everything. Um, you know, the incentive for the, the, these private grocery stores and pharmacies, you know, they get paid for administering the vaccine. So they, they do want to offer incentives for people to do this. And I'm sure they would love to, to have more people coming in. They would love to have that supply increased. Um, you know, why Krispy Kreme decided to do this? Uh, I think it's probably just, you know, it's a PR trick to try to get people to come in and buy a coffee too. And, you know, uh, but if that convinces some people to either get a vaccine or maybe just to get people thinking about it, right? I, I think that's good. And that's a case where, you know, we can see that some of the incentives can come from the market, right? That, that some of the, the benefits of people getting vaccinated are can be what we say internalized to, to firms or to individuals by giving them incentives. And so that, you know, Krispy Kreme can sell more donuts and coffee and, and we can have more people vaccinated. And so I think those kind of incentives, you know, it's hard to know. Do they have a huge effect in the aggregate? Probably not, but I think I think they're great and an example of how you know the civil society can be a great alternative to say government mandating people getting vaccines or other things. Okay. Um, okay. Another question from the audience: um, Why are public health experts so hesitant to call out the FDA and CDC for hesitancy and not clearly following the science? Or I guess you. 
they're shifting update of what the science is. You know, just within the past week, we saw that for K-12 schools, they shifted the you know, recommended social distance from six feet down to three feet. Um, I guess, what are your broad thoughts on kind of the yeah. discussions around these issues? Well, my broad thought here is, as you know, since most of you are in an economics class here, I can say this safely, is that economists know how to think about these things best. <laughs> Public health people really, they don't think in terms of costs and benefits the same way that, that economists do. And I think that, that economists, because we are kind of trained to think both of costs and benefits, to think of things at the margin, um, I think that, you know, public people in public health, I think they do a lot of great work, they do a lot of great research, uh, but they're very often singularly focused on, say, reducing the number of deaths from a disease, right? That, um, and, and you hear sometimes public health officials or governors communicate this, that like, we should do anything possible to prevent one death, right? And economists, like our, our head just starts ringing when we hear that, like, no, of course you shouldn't. There are all kinds of things we could do every day to prevent one death that we don't do, right? We need to think about, you know, what are the social costs of, of this particular intervention and what are then the benefits? Realizing there's uncertainty. Um, I think people in public health, because of the way they're trained and because of the incentives they face, um, they don't call out the FDA or CDC because they, they actually think that the CDC in general and the FDA are taking the right approach and that a cautious approach is better. Um, and that's that's going to mean to the extent that, you know, people trained in public health and public health officials, to the extent that they are controlling policy, uh, it's probably going to be a lot more restrictive than economists might like, even though I, many economists are fine with a lot of restrictions, I think, uh, because of, of the way that they focus on, you know, improving health in some way. That's just that's just different from how economists think about it. And of course, we're right. So <laughs> <laughs> great. Um, you, you touched on it a bit, a bit when you, you know, alluded to, hey, we've just been giving people money for seemingly no reason. But if you could maybe give us uh, some of your thoughts on the multiple rounds of stimulus yeah. that have been done as a policy response to the macroeconomic downturns related mm -hmm. to the pandemic. Yeah, so my general thoughts are that if we're going to give aid to people, it, we should try to target it as best as possible to people who actually need it. Now, I know that's hard to do, right? There are people who have clearly been unemployed and they're the easiest to target. There are other people who have seen their incomes reduced, but maybe aren't unemployed and they're maybe a little harder to identify. Uh, I think that, you know, giving checks to 90% of Americans, it just doesn't make sense. Like I got a check, you know, I mean, maybe I'm not making enough here at UCA, but, you know, I fell just under the threshold of I got a check. Uh, and, uh, you know, our family has been fine. We actually have spent less in the past year. I mean, so we actually gave away most of the money to charities we support because, like, we've not been affected. But, you know, the, the amount of, of debt that, you know, keep in mind, I, I work in public finance as well. The federal government already is running trillion dollar deficits even before the pandemic. That's kind of the new norm. Uh, here now we're adding six trillion dollars in new debt on top of that. Uh, you know, I, I'm not a huge deficit hawk always, but this is out of control when, when a lot of it is just general support to people who don't necessarily need it. Now, how do you target it exactly? Um, it, it's hard to say what's, you know, other than people who've been unemployed, how do you target it? Um, I think the fact that we're in the middle of tax filing season makes this actually very easy. You can, you can see, is someone's 2020 income lower than 2019? And you could say, okay, we're gonna then cut you a check based on that. And, and you know, there'd be a limit, right? It's, Maybe the limit is 1400 like they did, but it's very simple to do. And if they looked at my situation, they would see that Horpidal's family has not seen an income reduction of any magnitude. 
that's going to affect them between their 2020 return and their 2019 return. So they could have put in place, I mean, they, they were debating this bill right during tax filing season. They could have said, when you file your 2020 return, there'll be a way to calculate, and you know, TurboTax would do it for you, right? A way to calculate, has your income significantly declined from the pre-pandemic year? And I don't know how much money that would have saved, but I would guess you would at least cut out two thirds of, of the checks that were sent to families. And that would have been much more targeted. And you could have even made the amount then bigger, right? You could have either said, let's, let's cut the amount by two thirds, or let's boost the payments to people who actually were affected. Um, I think the targeted aid for unemployed people, I think that was good. You know, I do worry when they're paying them more than 100% of their market wage a little bit. Um, you know, the other, I mean, a lot of the things that have been done the past year have been for support of businesses that were harmed by government shutdown orders. I, I have mixed feelings about that too, because I think it's good to help them. But what incentives is this set up for, you know, if the federal government is going to give loans to businesses when state governments shut them down, our state government's going to do that again in future years. So I worry about the future incentive dynamics of that. As, as you can see, as students, we love to talk about incentives and think about, about all the possible effects of that. But I think, you know, it's good the government's been supporting people. I think it's been too big and in, in the wrong places in, in many cases. Uh, Jeremy, thank you again so much. Uh, greatly thank you. I've enjoyed it. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you, everyone, for watching. Have a good day. Good luck with, out there with everything. <laughs> thank you for listening to the Bagwell Center podcast. For more content like this, please be sure to subscribe. And for more information about the Bagwell Center and its programs, please visit us online at coles.kennesaw.edu econop.